Son and head against. Amen. In a perhaps too often quoted phrase in the program booklet for the London premiere in 1847 of Mendelssohn's Elijah, His Royal Highness the Prince Albert, consort of the Queen Victoria, wrote by way of a dedication to the noble artist who, when surrounded by the Baal-worshipping of the force, has, like a second Elijah, employed his genius and his skill in the service of the true. Quite the compliment to the composer. These stirring sentiments pointed to the great cause of fighting as a lone figure for the good and the true in a world of falsity and delusion, as being taken on by this composer in the oratorio. Yet it has to be said that for all the splendours of the score, the fact the composer himself was apparently feeling at a low ebb. He had grown weary of all the drama of his success. As one of his biographers wrote, the master's best friends interpreted the resignation expressed in the aria in the work It Is Enough as a personal confession of his weakening will to live. Felix had interpreted the historical Elijah as a prophet, such as we could use again today, strong, zealous, angry, gloomy, in opposition to the courtiers, the rabble, and practically the whole world, but it had left him exhausted. And in October 1845, when pondering whether to take on the Elijah commission, he'd written to a friend, I considered in all seriousness asking him to buy me a house with a garden so that I could retreat permanently to the gay, easy life. He was finding it all too much. One almost expects him to quote the Georgics by Virgil at that point. But anyway, battling him as he was through hard times for what is right, that is a vocation with a, a number here we can identify. Those called to live alone, in this case we think of Elijah in a cave up a mountain. And then he hears that deeply mysterious still small voice. But before I come back to that, I'm reminded as we look at the very rich and meaningful terrain in the readings which we have heard today of the old adage which would say, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed, which is a gloss upon the literal words of St. Augustine, words written in the early fifth century. As there is a rich interplay which it is possible to discern between our readings, and in particular, the Old Testament angle to the Gospel, which is not commonly noted. While there is another interplay within the Gospel itself, at work which could, would be between the Transfiguration on the one hand, and the scene of the agony in the Garden in Gethsemane on the other. These are two of the most significant episodes in our Lord's revelation of himself, to his disciples. Remember prior to the resurrection, the climax of the revelation of his glory, his divinity, was the transfiguration. But the climax of the revelation of his humanity, his humility, his self-abasement in taking on humanity, comes in the agony in Gethsemane. However mystified his followers were by the events of the time, the disciples later realized 
that on the Mount of the Transfiguration they had seen, as far as human senses could, God, and that in Gethsemane they had seen the clearest proof of the form of a slave that had been taken by the Son of God, one who was divine, as utterly human too. And there were several coincidences of circumstance between those two episodes, which would have been very striking and evident to them. Both events took place on a mountain. Both were witnessed only by Peter, James, and John. In both cases, Jesus underwent a spiritual experience which changed his physical appearance in a unique way. In both cases, Peter played a special part. In the first, he was alone in speaking to Jesus. In the second, in Gethsemane, he alone was spoken to by Jesus. Both events seem to have taken place at night, yet the disciples were vividly conscious of color, of the dazzling white of Jesus' robes in the one case, in the Transfiguration, and of the red drops of blood in the other. And after each event, Jesus resumed his normal appearance and demeanor, and the glory of the Transfiguration faded, while on the other hand he told them to have no fear, the agony passed, and he delivered himself without fear into the hands of sinners. Thus, Christian tradition could see the two stories as two halves, as it were, of a diptych, illustrating the two complementary truths which make up the mystery of the Incarnation, of Jesus as the one who was God and also human. Thus, at this moment of transfiguration, Jesus' divinity is powerfully revealed to his disciples. Yet the roots of this complex story, so vital to Christian theology, are also deeply embedded in earlier Jewish tradition, the new in the old, once again, concealed, to which, of course, the presence of Moses and Elijah here very firmly point. If we look back to the rabbinic literature, Moses and Elijah often appear in the same passage and are frequently compared and Elijah also appears at times even with the Messiah. But it seems that in only one place in all rabbinic literature do Moses, Elijah and the Messiah appear together. This rare conjunction occurs in a Midrash to Psalm 43. And Midrash, just to be clear, is a rabbinic explanation, an elaboration of biblical verses that reveals layers of meaning that are theologically sound but not explicit in the text. This particular Midrash weaves a hopeful message from the threads of a very gloomy Psalm 43, even though the psalmist is, as we would say nowadays, rather depressed because God seems to have abandoned him. The psalmist says, For you are my God, my stronghold. Why? Have you rejected me? And goes on to implore, send your light and your truth. They will lead me, they will bring me to your holy mountain and to your tents. But the Midrash continues with, did I not send you redemption in Egypt? As it is said, please send Moses his servant, Aaron whom he chose, quoting Psalm 105, please send us another two as their counterparts. So back to Psalm 43, the Midrash continues, Send your light and your truth, they will lead me. And the Midrash then states that God will send salvation again, just as he did earlier. 
continues, send your light as the Messiah, and your truth, represented by Elijah. They will lead me, they will bring me to your holy mountain and to your tents. Immediately, it is apparent that this rhetorical structure is the very pattern of the gospel account in which Elijah, your truth, comes with Moses to meet Jesus, the light, the Messiah. It's notable that both the Midrash and the Gospels quote Isaiah 42, 1, My servant, my chosen one, in whom I delight, which we can readily compare with wording in today's Gospel. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This also casts light on an otherwise deeply hard to explain action of St. Peter, who suddenly proposed to make three booths or tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Psalm 43 remembers, we should remember, states, they will bring me to your holy mountain and to your tents. In the Gospel accounts of the Transfiguration, Jesus and his disciples climb thus a mountain far from civilization. There Peter offers to construct tents. Just as in the Psalm, the Midrash, the Messiah is designated the light, and in the Transfiguration scene, Jesus' face and clothing become luminous. So, as one commentator puts it, reflecting upon all this Jewish background, in the Gospels the image of illumination is made to serve a Christian purpose, namely the establishment of the Sonship of Jesus as both human and divine. The pieces that shape this Christian motif have been borrowed from Jewish tradition, but are deployed in the service of Christian theology. It is as though, as the commentator puts it, a church had been built from stones that were once part of a synagogue, the final arrangement not Jewish, but each stone once had a place in a Jewish structure that preceded it, now transcended in the New Testament revelation that was the drama of the Transfiguration. But what about that Old Testament lesson with Elijah again, and that still small voice? To understand this passage and why Elijah had reached so dire a pass, we need to remember the history there just beforehand. At this point, Israel, once again, has sunk into a time of idolatry, with the result that God, Yahweh, sends upon them a three-year drought. Towards the end of that, Elijah summons the erring king, Ahab, and his court to Mount Carmel. There, he stands a solitary figure, albeit with Yahweh behind him. There he stands opposed by Baal and 450 of his prophets. But the Lord proves he is the true God by incinerating the lot, an altar, the stones, the sacrifices, everything, as the fire of the Lord fell and consumed all. Thus was Baal shown to be false and only a pretended God, whose prophets are slaughtered by Elijah. All Israel takes up a hearty Yahweh is God chant, a feast ensues, and a rainstorm signals the end of the drought. Almost worthy of an opera, one might think. But then amidst this great moment of victory, Queen Jezebel swears to kill the prophet, and so Elijah flees which is the stage at which the figures of the messenger and the word of Yahweh take center stage. Deep in the wilderness, exhausted, despairing, Elijah finds that in the fact of all of that, he is nonetheless not alone. The messenger of Yahweh visits him twice. Our English translations often say the angel of the Lord, 
but the Hebrew word is malak, which means simply messenger. And a malak can be a human messenger, such as the one Jezebel sends in the Book of Kings, or an angelic messenger, or Yahweh's special messenger. The special malak of God is one that appears, in fact, repeatedly in the Old Testament. He speaks with full divine authority, even calls himself God and is called God, and has the divine name in him. Think of Exodus. And from the perspective of the New Testament, it's even tempting to say, as some have, that this is none other than the Son of God sent by the Father. In which case, we have in this story the Son of God visiting, consoling Elijah in the wilderness. And this special Malak then sends him onward to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai. At this mountain of God, the special messenger of God comes once again to visit. Only this time he's called the word of Yahweh. This is the same word that ushers Abraham outside to count the stars in Genesis, and who appears to Samuel. Later still, he touches Jeremiah on the mouth. But now he appears in sequence, first to Elijah as the messenger, next as the word, and finally as the voice of God. Three phenomena shake Mount Horeb, a great and strong wind, an earthquake, and a fire. Each time, however, we are told that the Lord was not in these. Well then, in what was he? The Hebrew phrase is evidently, and I apologize for my appalling pronunciation, kol where a call is a sound or voice. The word damama means calm or silent, and dakar means thin or small. Hence, of course, the various renderings we have, the still, the small voice, a gentle whisper, the sound of a low whisper, or the sound of minute stillness. And the word here is call, voice or sound, but it's something that goes through progressive change and deepening in meaning, all of which makes it tempting to understand the Son of God first visiting Elijah as the messenger, as the word, and finally the voice, as I have suggested that same voice that followed the wind, earthquake, and fire. A voice we may understand as the voice of Christ himself, to whom we are each called to hearken ourselves, however adverse our exterior context may be, however much the world may seem to have gone astray, and even as the people of Israel had in the time of Elijah. Thought about in that way, it's possible to see too how that still small voice has later come to be identified with the conscience, which is always like the prophets of the Old Testament, calling us back to what is the true path, remembering that God calls us to serve him in spirit and in truth. We are each called to be guided by our own judgment and to enjoy freedom, but to be rightly exercised, that inner voice and conscience must be ordered to the truth, and that is the hard part namely the proper exercise of discernment. And that is what conscience requires. For our God-given freedom never gives us a right to do the moral wrong. The goal for acts of conscience must always be that we are rooted in what is good and true. All of which points to the hard work involved in applying this concept. But it also points to the room each person may rightly require they be given to exercise that conscience. 
In an age which increasingly seeks to enforce uniformity of thought, the conscience is both a safeguard and under attack, which takes us right back to the glorious liberty of the children of God that is given us in Christ, and indeed that calling which Prince Albert discerned in Mendelssohn to the noble artist when surrounded by the force who has, like second Elijah, employed his genius, his skill, in the service of the true. That, for us, of course, will always be the calling of God, the calling to recognize in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom we are called to serve, in freedom, in love, and in whom we will find, ultimately, our salvation and well-being. Amen.